Hey, you guys, just a quick announcement that the Other People podcast is now available on Spotify. If you're a Spotify person, you can listen to this show on Spotify. Also, the regular reminder that this show is uh, listener-supported. All episodes of this program are offered freely, more than 500 and counting. They're all available for free. There's another People app. That, too, is free. So your support makes a difference. If you would like to support this program, you can do so at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Okay. Thank you. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. What a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person and just one person. So, hey, everybody. How's it going? Welcome <laughs> right. to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. I'm very excited to have Steve Almond back on the program for the third time. He's got a new book out called Bad Stories, What the Hell Just Happened to Our Country. It's available from Red Hen Press. It is uh, about where we are right now and how it happened. And I, you know, I, I could put my, uh, I could try to verbalize my thinking on this book, but I, I'm, I'm tempted now to read what Cheryl Strayed uh, says uh, about the book. It's like one of these great blurbs that's actually just an email. You know, it's like her direct response after reading the book. She emailed it to Steve, and then they slapped it on the back of the book, or at least they slapped it on the back of the uh, advanced reader copy. And she says, this is Cheryl Strayed uh, talking about bad stories after she finished reading it. Quote, I started reading your book hours ago, and I couldn't stop until I finished, and now it's 1.30 a.m., damn it. It is so fucking good. Bad stories is among the very few things that have made sense to me when it comes to this damn election. It's depressing as hell, but also somehow consoling, too. And that's, I think that last note is what I want to uh, focus on. You know, to read about what happened, to try to understand the mess that we're in. Uh, you know, as long as we're, you know, agreeing that we're in a mess. If we can at least agree on that. I think it's worth our while to try to figure out why. Like, what went into this? Because if we don't figure out that, then there's, it's going to be pretty hard to come up with any viable solutions. So I think that when it comes to consolation and this, the feeling of consolation that I have after reading Bad Stories, this new book by Steve Almond, it's that he does such a lucid job of uh, diagnosing it. He's one of our finest cultural uh, critics, I feel, and just an incredibly lucid uh, thinker and writer. And I feel grateful to him that he took the time to wade through all this muck on our behalf and write this book. I think it's an important book. And I should say I'm going to have, because I feel like we're rounding the bend now, like we're approaching some kind of breaking point in this presidency where it's going to go one way or the other. And there's no guarantee which way it's going to go. That's my sense of it. So I feel, uh, I feel it's both timely and kind of obligatory. I feel a sense of responsibility to have uh, writers on this program who can speak to this more lucidly than I can, because I think we need to be uh, engaging with it as painful as it might be, as unsavory as it might be. If we don't confront what ills the country, then we're dooming ourselves. <laughs> Hate to break it to you. 
that's my feeling anyway. And uh, it's just a great book. It makes me think, and uh, I'm just really excited to have a chance to talk to Steve again. So rather than hear me babble, let's get to Steve Allman, the conversation I had with him not too long ago. His new book, one more time, is called Bad Stories, What the Hell Just Happened to Our Country. It's available from Redhead Press. This is Steve Almond. That's a beautiful ideal. That is something to aspire to. Like the United States is a representative democracy. Those are beautiful ideals. But they're also fucking bullshit. And if you don't recognize that they're bullshit, that they're they're wishes rather than realities, then you never address... Uh, you know, well, okay, we we figured out that everybody should at least ostensibly have the vote, that it's not okay to keep people of color from having the vote or women. We figured that out, and we figured out that we can't give people a literacy test at the polls or a poll tax. Like, we figured that those abuses out, but we still have an electoral college system, which is patently ridiculous, it's slave owner math, totally devised to to bring the southern states into the union. Um, you know, we have voter suppression that's rampant in a million different ways. We have all these systemic flaws in our actual electoral process, this infusion of corporate influence and, and propaganda that's just polluting our discourse. And until we're honest about that, we're not going to have a representative democracy and we should stop saying that we do. Well, and, and when you talk about, um, you know, the, uh, the different books that you were reading as a way to sort of undergird uh, the book that you were writing, like were these books that you had already read uh, I'm thinking of Neil Postman's book, and forgive me, oh, yeah. I'm blanking on it, but that's that factors in, uh, you know, a lot into the the story that you're telling. But were yep. the, were the, was this foundation already laid? I mean, I know that you had been working on and writing about this stuff, but as a reader, did you have to go out and kind of like try to f- find some somebody to explain it to you before you could explain it to us, or had you already done most of that reading? Yeah. So, th- so the secret is I'd already done most of that reading, and not only that, those particular moments and books and passages that I'm citing had been ones that I was returning to over and over again. You know, if I'm seeing um, James Baldwin talking about our our mass media, uh, right, if I'm quoting Baldwin, it's because that's a quote that I've returned to over and over again, because like all great writing, it gets smarter and smarter. Yeah, yeah. And you know, the same thing with um, with Neil Postman. And that book was given to me by Mitchell Kaplan at Books and Books. When I interviewed him about the 1968 um, political conventions, when I was a reporter in Miami 30 years ago, I don't know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, and I read it and I was like, holy crap, this guy is saying all the things that I was sort of trying to pull together in my head but hadn't pulled together. And he's absolutely like become a seer to me, somebody who saw the future. And the reason he's, you know, the certain people are just that clear eyed and I'm happy to rob from them, if you know what I mean, like Postman saw it and more people should be reading that book if they want to understand how the United States devolved to the point where we essentially made an entertainer, a celebrity, a real candidate. Well, how did that happen? It's because the, you know, cable news and, and the other media outlets treated him not like a politician, they would have just reduced him to, they wouldn't have covered his rallies and had all those ridiculous feeds of an empty podium before he gets up in front of 25,000 angry white people and, you know, starts calling out people of color and all his other, you know, ridiculous dance moves. Like they did that because they were treating him like a celebrity. And why were they doing like that? Because they knew that it would juice their ratings. And why would it juice their ratings? Because we as citizens no longer take 
as seriously as we used to, the idea that actually politics is a contest of ideas, not a pageant of attitudes. And, you know, Postman saw it. What was, the, what was that, the name of his book, just before I forget, so that people can yeah, read Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, it's called Amusing Ourselves to Death. Amusing Ourselves to Death. And it was really a treatise written to contend with Reaganism. You know, he was sitting there saying, holy cow, we now have an entertainer in the White House, a movie star, you know, bedtime for Bonzo. And to him, that was, even though Reagan was the governor of California and, and, you know, had been a political person for much of his life, there was still a sense that he wasn't a, a career politician, a lawyer. He didn't come out of the military. You know, he was a guy who was an entertainment figure and had a way of, you know, uh, entertaining people, telling a story, etc. He knew how to turn on the charm for the television, and that was a big part of his appeal. And Postman is sitting there saying, extrapolate that out a little bit. If we become a culture that is totally in the thrall of entertainment, if we make everything into entertainment, religion and the media and, you know, and our politics, if everything becomes a form of entertainment, we're no longer really a republic at that point. We're an audience. And if we're an audience, then we are just going to elect, uh, we're going to elect an entertainer. You know, people are sitting there saying, well, how could this happen? It's like, well, if you're an audience, then you, and you, you spend a lot of time hate watching reality TV, then you're going to eventually elect, elect a reality TV star. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's like, it, what is it? Two of the last four Republican presidents have been entertainment figures. Like that's... That's a pretty high rate. <laughs> like we're, right, and they've seem... been success. Yeah, they've been successful in a way that, you know, the more traditional Republicans, Mitt Romney, McCain, so forth, aren't, uh, you know, especially Trump was able to figure out the attention economy. And he was also able to figure out that it was totally fine for him to. In fact, he won because he didn't pivot all this nonsense about he needs to pivot. It was a bad story. He won because he didn't pivot because he understood that he could really gin up his base and get people super psyched up. Um, if he continued to say outrageous things, completely control the narrative of the election and that there would be no discussion, substantive discussion of policy of whatever ideas he had, none basically other than, you know, basically treating it like a business that would aggrandize him, right, financially or, or narcissistically. And he figured it out. He was right. Uh, you know, he figured out that the media were craven and, and afford, primarily for profit and that he could control the narrative by saying outrageous things and that all those Republicans who were like, never Trump will never vote for him. You know, he's despicable. All those guys in his cabinet now, all the people in Congress who were like, oh, he's he said this. He said that. It's so outrageous. I, I, I can't countenance that all those smug self, you know, self-righteous people would fall in line like every other uh, Republican, practically 90 percent of them, because it's a tribal arrangement at this point, because, uh, you know, the, the sort of the last safe space for true bigotry in our culture is that you can be a bigot politically. You, you can make all kinds. And I mean that across the board. If, you know, when it, when you see a Trump Trump bumper sticker, I, I instantly become a bigot. The person driving that vehicle is white male who's angry. He owns a gun. He's racist, whether he says it out loud or not. He hates immigrants. He's violent in his ideation. This is literally what I think when I see a, a, a Trump bumper sticker. That is me being incredibly bigoted. 
I have no idea what that person's story is. I have no idea what stories they're telling themselves um, that make it feel like, yeah, Trump's the guy I want to vote for. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, no, that's a, what that's yeah. one of the hardest things to grapple with is, and you 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 uh, do it in the book. You know, not only when you're telling the story of the the dad that you meet at the pool, uh, you know, right after the election, I believe, where right. you're so you know you're both there with your daughters and you kind of have a friendly exchange, and it's at that point that you see that he's got a MAGA hat on, right? And then there's also the section of the book, and this is the I think this is the the bit of data that I think so many of us uh, wrestle with is that, you know, what is it? 52% of white women voted yeah. for Trump. And it's like, how right. do how do you, it's hard for me to, to wrap my head around that because, uh, you know, he's so explicit in his misogyny and it would yeah. seem to be like a no, it'd be, be like a no brainer. Like, of course they're not going to vote for him. And yet they did. And not only did they, they did so by a majority. Yeah. So one of the things that was the most haunting after um, the, the election night itself, I had to go teach this workshop. I thought it was going to be, you know, I, I thought Clinton was going to win. I, I thought there was a significant chance that that Trump might win. But I basically thought, like like most people, chances are she's going to win. So I like I was like, all right, I'm going to go teach a workshop. You know, I love doing that. Let's do a sex writing workshop. It'd be something light. And, you know, we can just kind of have a, a fun time. <laughs> and then, of course, the result is is not that, and I'm like, I don't think it's appropriate for me to be teaching a sex workshop today. <laughs> I feel like I just don't think that's playing at all. And so, you know, I, I I wanted to. It was really part of the ideas that ended up, you know, feeding into the book. I I, I was remembering Moby Dick and remembering this moment when Ahab is roaring. He's this sort of monster of grievance, and he basically says, "Forget economic motive i'm going for revenge a whale has unmanned me has bitten my leg off i'm a cripple and i'm going to go kill that whale and i was like and everybody signs on everybody says let's do it captain right they they all get enlisted in this crazy quest that derives springs directly from masculine insecurity wounded male ego and i thought that's kind of 2016 so i wanted to write a or i wanted to lead a workshop that was about rage and the way in which rage, which is always disguising or covering for, for sorrow, is really a teacher and can be amused. It's a red lesson is the way I think of it. Rage is a red lesson. And so that's the workshop I taught the day after the election. And afterwards, as I write in the book, this woman came up to me and she had written, Brad, this incredibly beautiful, searing Peace. And I gave people a prompt: write about a moment where you were in, you could feel in your body that you were enraged, um, and just stay there. And you know, and it was this heartbreaking account of this woman who was got to college. Her parents had gotten divorced. So she's off away from home. Her parents have split. She's feeling very insecure. And you know what happens next? Some dude, some upperclassman, seduces her. They sleep together. It's clearly a coercive, uh, you know, at least a coercive sexual encounter. Then this guy tells a friend of his who talks about it in front of, you know, talks about the sexual encounter in front of a whole bunch of other people. So not only has she suffered a certain amount of trauma because she's been either sexually assaulted or coerced into a non-consensual, non-consensual sexual act, but she's now been humiliated uh, by a, a, a dude in front of a bunch of other dudes. Right. And so, you pretty much couldn't describe a scenario that more precisely mirrors how Trump behaves. You know, he's sitting there, the, the, the galling aspect of the, uh, 
you know, ho- ask, what was it called? Hollywood access tape or access Hollywood tape is that not only does he grab women by the pussies, but he's the sort of guy who brags about doing that and his power to do that to another dude. Okay. And I'm sitting there going, okay, so this woman told this very painful but necessary story about her own history. She really drilled down into how humiliating that was and how enraged she was about it. And after class, we're talking, and she starts out of the blue, not with my prompting, starts saying these weird things about how she doesn't like Michelle Obama, and then she doesn't like Obama, and Obama never did any good, and why are we so afraid of Trump anyway? What you know? What terrible thing is going to happen? Uh, and I was just, I cannot express to you how confused I was by this, trying to say, wait a second, of all the people in this class, you must know at the deepest level exactly why a guy like this is so dangerous. Um, you, you have to know that because you told that beautiful, brave, painful story to the rest of the class, and it was beautifully written as well. And for me, the lesson was sometimes it is, the bad story is that sometimes it's preferable to identify with the abuser rather than confronting your own helplessness uh, before the specter of, of male aggression or, um, you know, sexual, um, sexual bullying. And, you know, she was basically saying to me when she said that, uh, what do you have to be so afraid of with Trump? She wasn't saying that to me. She was saying it to herself. It was a kind of it's not that big a deal. It doesn't really matter. And I think she was probably, if I'm honest, I think she was angry at me for through this workshop, kind of digging up that moment of extraordinary vulnerability, even though it was a beautiful thing that she had the courage to write about that. It was also frightening and upsetting. And, you know, I think in her own way, she was saying to me, Hey, fuck you for doing that. Um, I think maybe she voted for Trump or didn't vote at all. There was something in this that felt like it was a kind of veiled confession, but that haunted me. I mean, I was, I cannot tell you, I couldn't get to sleep that night. I called my wife. I was so distressed about it. And, um, it was one of the things that convinced me that I had to try to write a book to make sense of all this. Otherwise I was literally going to go insane. How long did it take you to get to, a, uh, to arrive at a place of, you know, felt understanding or at least like, you know, you, like you could, you could let it go for a little bit. <laughs> like, you know, the, the epiphany or the insight that you just shared with me, like how long did it take? It took a long, well, it took me, I mean, I, you know how it is in writing. It's like, well, what should we be writing? But you write but what, about what you can't get rid of by other means. Like it sticks in your head. You're stuck on it, whether it's for me, you know, Neil Postman and his brilliant, um, you know, sort of prescient theories or a quote from James Baldwin or a scene from Moby Dick or an encounter like this that was so disturbing and perplexing to me. Um, you know, those things stick in your head. And they're usually a signal that you have to do some kind of creative work to try to figure them out. Now, sometimes that's writing a short story or a novel. You know, I write in the book about all these failed novels, but those novels may have failed as acts of imagination or, you know, I wasn't talented enough or patient enough or self-forgiving enough or whatever it is to like finish that novel. But the ideas that I was working on were important and meaningful and I was trying to figure some stuff out. And I think that's really 
how it goes is that you're constantly trying to create um, whatever sort of art, in our case, literary art, that is solving these, these uh, or if not solving, at least getting a little bit better purchase on moments and scenes from our own lives and encounters and whatever else it is that are genuinely bewildering to us. You know, it's this rush of experience and we're just there trying to pluck meaning, like plucking a salmon from a stream or something. We're just trying to pluck these salmons of meaning. This is terrible, but you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I'm, forget I'm with the you. Salmon. <laughs> forget salmon. Let's just stick with plucking, okay? You don't, it doesn't have to be a large fish. You just pluck it. And so that that's what I'm constantly trying to do is is figure out all these episodes that I talk about in the book, like talking with this friend of mine who's like this Harvard-educated research scientist who who voted for the libertarian candidates. And I'm like, the government bailed you out when you were unemployed eight years ago and you didn't have enough money for health insurance for your two little kids and your wife who's a public school teacher. And you're going to tell me it doesn't matter who you vote for? You know, like uh, there were all these encounters where I was so distraught or having this young friend who basically went from being a Bernie bro to being a Russian bot. Like they got to him. They electronically brainwashed him, just like we're now learning was was the design of Cambridge Analytica and Bannon and this kind of cabal of, of online manipulators. Like the Russians had a lot of people working on the inside to try to degrade our democracy. They had lots of help. That's how an empire falls. It's always from internal division. And, you know, this is me trying to not as an expert, not as a political scientist, not even as a journalist. This is just me as a person who thinks in terms of story, trying to figure out the big stories that that seem to matter in this outcome. And ultimately, the ones that we have to look at, because you can get rid of Trump one way or another, but whatever led to Trump, that's not going to be gotten rid of until we really drill down and figure out how did we, how was a circumstance created where this guy was even a serious anything other than just a, a, a shyster, you know, a, a kind of super destructive, hyper capitalist, greed head, you know, fucking limp dick warrior, you know, like the fact that he has any place in our public life suggests that America is disfigured morally. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I, I, like j- just grasping for any kind of shred of optimism or reason for hope, um, you know, in this environment. And I was thinking last night, uh, as I was reading is, uh, is that, you know, like yesterday evening I went to in Los Angeles of all places, a fundraiser for a guy who's running for Congress in the second district of Arkansas, who has a friend out here who wanted to help him fundraise. And, you know, like I just, yep. I got floated an email and I was like, you know what, I'll go. And I, I was standing yep. there thinking to myself, like, wow, I, you know, uh, a year or two ago, I probably wouldn't be standing here. Bingo. And tonight my wife is going to a ladies, you know, regular, there's like this group of, of ladies who get together once a month or twice a month and they sit around and they invite speakers in and they pitch in and fly people. You know, it's like this thing, like people are really right. getting active. And then on Saturday is the, uh, is the gun march. And we're like trying to figure out a sitter for that. And I'm like, well, this is, I mean, things are at least in my immediate sphere, changing and my behavior has changed as a result. And I think that's the case for a good amount of us. So yep. hopefully that would be a part of the solution that you're talking about, like an honest grappling, uh, like, and, and yep. you're, you're also going to have to express the political will. Like we, you, we have to have people in Congress, uh, you know, who have some balls. Yeah. Well, I feel like we've created safe spaces 
you know, the, the, the right loves to mock safe spaces. Oh, you know, you snowflakes. But it's like Trump occupies the ultimate safe space. He never has to face anybody who would really call him out. He, 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 and, and this is true of all the demagogues on the right. They're such chicken shits. I mean, you know, I had one encounter with, with Sean Hannity, uh, you know, on his show, you know, 10 years ago and they yanked, you know, they, they yanked the cord because I just wasn't going to, you know, uh, abide by his stupid, you know, binary. You're a liberal. Therefore, everything you say is suspect. It was like, ugh, good Lord. Yeah. You, you, you're, you would, you would be like the, the, uh, the worst nightmare of a Fox producer as, as a, as a, as a guest, I can imagine them just being like, yeah, we're not having this guy back because you, well, yeah, I, I th- th- that's what happened. They literally like pulled the plug. But, but my point is we have consented as a culture to create a safe space for people who are literally, they retail hate and lies and completely corrosive, despicable conspiracy theories. You know, we are the ones who we've created this safe space. Dylan Roof goes, you know, on the internet and looks at the same stats that President Trump was tweeting out these bogus bullshit stats about black on white crime with all these images of black, you know, uh, African-Americans being violent or killing whites and get so jacked up by watching this stuff, which is all the crimes may be real, but the stats are are absolute garbage. Right. Um, and he gets so jacked up that he decides to get a gun and shoot whatever it was, 11 or 12 innocent African-American parishioners in a church. OK, so don't tell me that there isn't a, a form of terrorism that is being given and, and a kind of mental terrorism that is being given a safe space with, with many of the people who are getting these weapons. We have created a culture where we've made guns so readily available. We've made weapons of war. You just tell me I cannot for the life of me understand why any human being, how small does your fucking dick have to be that you as a civilian need a military grade weapon to slaughter what a deer you know, right, like yeah. how, how, how unsporting do you have to be as a sportsman that you need an assault rifle? <laughs> like that is ultimately like you need, you need to OD on Viagra to even feel a tremor in your fucking dick. If you need an assault rifle to feel like a man or to feel protected somehow, think to walk around in that kind of fear or that kind of masculine doubt. And I'm sorry to gender it, but I just, I don't see a lot of female shooters on the news. I see almost entirely angry white dudes who are lashing out because they feel masculine and injured pride and, and they feel shame and they feel self-hatred that they, you know, that they literally aim rather than aiming it inside. They they muster whatever destructive capacity they have, again, fomented and fostered by these maniacs who we've given a safe space to just foment these crazy conspiracy theories in which the only logical response to a perceived threat, which is complete nonsense, is violent ideation. And if I sound kind of animated about this, Brad, it's because, you know, (laughs) I've been getting these letters for years from people threatening me or saying that I'm vermin or I should be in a work camp or my daughter looks like a maggot or whatever it is. It's like, I knew that that was out there, you know, years ago when Trump was still just a reality star, failed businessman, shyster, running his various cons. I was aware that there was a significant portion of the population 
that constructed things in this paranoid style that Richard Hofstetter talked about back in the Goldwater years, where it was this lurid set of fantasies and conspiracies that was really uh, shading towards fascism. Yeah, and I mean, once didn't yeah. you write a book? You you published a remember you published those that yeah. series of small books and wasn't wasn't one of them uh, yeah. a collection of these like the hate mail basically? Yeah, letters from people who hate me, and <laughs> I, I thought that those letters were really important because you get this Fox News version that's kind of airbrushed and it's all this sort of you know smug insinuation and it's conspiracy theories as well and occasionally somebody will shoot up a pizza parlor because they've spread some conspiracy. It's very damaging. But it's nowhere near what the right wing radio nuts are fomenting or the Alex Jones or Breitbart's of the world. They literally are openly trying to get people to go crazy, um, you know, to, to feel that the only way that they can protect themselves is through violence. And it's not just a necessary response to the threats that are out there. It's a heroic one. What did Trump say at the rallies? Punch them out. Don't worry, I'll pay your legal fees. But, you know, back in the old days, and that's really this authoritarian mindset at work. It always says that if you give people a, a, a short, simple, punitive solution, uh, a, a certain um, number of people will be incredibly drawn to that. Would you rather have your child be imaginative or would you ha rather them follow the rules? Well, there are a lot of people who say, I don't care about imagination. I don't care about empathy. I want them to follow the rules, you know, and Trump really fed into that. People mocked the sort of poverty of his ideas or how simplistic or childish they were. But that, again, was the, the appeal, you know, build a wall. That's a really simple solution to a really big, complicated, nuanced problem. How are we going to grapple with immigration in this country? So I, I feel like what's what, what we've lost sight of is that we have created a safe space for people who are paranoid, who, who are for-profit demagogues, who literally have um, indoctrinated an audience into a belief system that is closer, frankly, or, or at least ready to tilt into fascist thought. And, you know, we discovered that. That is the base that will not only never give up Trump, but will never give up their guns. And if you if you try to say to them, we're going to take your gun, that's their wish fantasy, because then you're just going to ruby ridge that shit. And, and this is a place where I, I do get very, um, you know, I can shade into a lot of fear because the people who are the most heavily armed and militarized in this country are also the people who are the most paranoid and crazy and who have been indoctrinated into the style of thought that is deeply paranoid um, and that mistakes sensible gun control measures with Obama literally showing up in probably in, in like Islamic gear to pry the gun from your hands and then force you and your children to pray to Allah. <laughs> it's like right. this is it's fear of a brown planet. Well, yeah, and you and, ta you talked about earlier the the you know the the bad stories uh, that the right wing media is telling you know and then has been telling for the past you know four decades or whatever, and how they really understand stakes. And I get yeah. that. They do. They know how to tell a story that's going to <clears throat> emotionally move their audience. But they also don't have any fidelity to the truth. <laughs> and, uh, or but that's narrative advantage. I know. That's what I'm saying, though. It's yeah. like a comple yeah. complexity or nuance. Like, that needs to be said. It's not just that left-wing media or, you know, people in the media of conscience 
are uh, negligent. It's that they're actually trying to grapple with these things, and it's fucking right. hard. And so if you're fight, right. if you're working against uh, an opponent who has no scruples, then they're going to have a huge advantage. Though these people, Sean Hannity, will say anything. He doesn't care. Right. He just wants to cash right. his check and like keep uh, revving up his audience. And so, right. you know, I don't know. I think like. It's a it's a it's a masterstroke in a sense that the, these right wing demagogues have figured out this formula, but yeah. it's not that ingenious, you know. It's kind no, of it's it's, not. Cr- it's crude, right? And and that's the thing is that people are like, oh gosh, Trump is such a you know masterful with dealing with the media. It's like you're you're mistaking instinct for intellection. He's not giving it a lot of thought. His instincts are lining up. His kind of insecure, his raw, wounded, masculine insecurity. He's been running the same fucking bullshit rap for as long as he's been in public life. It's been the exact same thing. You could take his first speech that he gave in 87, whenever it was. It was the same line. America's being laughed at. You know, you need a tough guy like me. And I'll be, I'll, I'm smarter than everybody. It's just, it's, it's just like laughable how simplistic it is. All these people who talk about, oh, Trump's a change agent. He's really going to shake things up. I'm like, are you kidding me? The only thing that he's done is import this kind of raw emotionalism and sense of volcanic grievance to the political world, which is filled with people who are generally cautiously technocratic and trying to, again, grapple with real problems. If you're somebody who's trying to explain that the the planet's thermostat is going kaplooey and there's all this complicated science that suggests that we can no longer exist roaring drunk on petroleum – it's simply not sustainable and the planet's going to start to get uninhabitable or much more difficult to live on. And there's going to be mass migration and wars and poverty and famine and crazy weather, all that stuff. That's a terrible story to have to tell. It's frightening. (laughs) It's much easier to tell the story like those academics are all just making it up to get grants. You know, those elitists are looking down at you. Don't worry. Don't they're trying to make you feel guilty for driving your Escalade. Don't fall for it. Like that's a much better story. You know, that's the thing. They have a huge narrative advantage. And if you I think that's part of Trump's appeal as a figure is that it is all of our fantasies to live unmoored from a functioning conscience, to do and say whatever we want without consequence. And whether, you know, I think for people on the left like me, it's really tempting to kind of we were like excited to go to our browsers and still are to see like what's the latest despicable thing. You know, for for people like us who are kind of in love with our own virtue, like what's the latest despicable thing that this guy has done that I can be furious about? And that's a way of affirming our own virtue. But if you think about it, Brad, it's also a way of indulging in a kind of wish fantasy. Like there's somebody out there living without a functioning conscience and doing whatever the hell he wants. And it's thrilling to watch somebody do that. Um, you know, we might not admit that we're turned on by it, but we're as turned on as Ishmael and Starbuck and the rest of them were by Ahab. There's something thrilling about people who literally are given a license to kill. I could walk down Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and they wouldn't, you know, and you're like, okay, that's scary and terrible and awful and all the things my superego tells me, but my id is going, that's incredibly exciting. Yeah, well, and it also, but it also feels very particular to Trump. And I, I guess the big fear is that it would metastasize and that there would be other Trump spawn or something who would get a similar permission from the culture. But like when I think about him and I think about, you know, the entirety of his public life and his celebrity 
And like this sort of, he sort of conditioned us, you know, we've like, especially people who live in New York, but I think the greater culture too, through his reality show and just through his like right. bombastic media appearances, like he sort of conditioned us to expect him to be outrageous. He sort of conditioned yeah. us to expect him to say anything and do anything. And so then when he did it, it wasn't as much of a shock as it would have been if say Mitt Romney had suddenly been like, I like to pee on people, you know? <laughs> right, right. Well, I, I would say it differently because I think that's granting Trump too much credit. I would say that the culture rewarded him for behaving in that way. The culture wanted to construct a capitalist fantasia where uh, uh, like a benevolent CEO, a tough-nosed benevolent CEO would craft this fantasy that you could make it in, in America and that, you know, you could become a part of that glamorous New York life and life in the boardroom and so forth. But it was but it was cutthroat. And, you know, you need to figure out how to satisfy the boss. And like that whole show was really a bad story that we indulged in a kind of capitalist fairy tale. And it wasn't that Trump was doing anything particularly brilliant to condition us. It was that the larger he was useful to a corporation to aggregate attention for the sponsors. Well, and, and been, it's, it's worth interjecting that isn't it Jeff Zucker who was running NBC that launched uh, right. that launched uh, The Apprentice, and then Jeff Zucker, of course, was then running CNN during the 2016 election. That's no, it's no accident that right. CNN was featuring these rallies, you know. Right, and and Les Moonves literally says just outright, out loud, like, "Hey, I know this is terrible for the country, but it's great for the bottom line." This is the chair of of CBS. Keep going, Donald. Keep going. I know it's going to be terrible for the country, but it's great for us. We're rolling in the dough. And you're like, you said that out loud. You want to hear like, something? You want to hear an L.A. story? Yeah. Tell uh, me that story. I, I was uh, my daughter. There's like this little theater school for, uh, you know, kids. My daughter's like five or six years old. Like whenever it was right around the time. Les you Moon should know that, Brad. You should know whether she's five or six. Well, I no, just I'm just <laughs> I'm just saying that like it was uh, it's like for kids. You know, you can go. They do like a little like mini production of Annie or whatever. And, uh, yeah. so it's very darling. And you, as a parent, you're just like, it's the best. Cause the kids are super sweet at that age and they're singing and they're acting. And my daughter was daddy Warbucks. And so they had her in a wig and it was, it's funny. Like daddy Warbucks had hair, but uh, I like that. Yeah. So anyway, I'm, uh, this is just, I happened. like the cross dressing and I like that she has the hair. <laughs> and, uh, I, so I'm sitting there in this little, you know, tiny little like black box theater where they do this and who is sitting next to me, but last fucking Moonves. And wow. it was right after that it happened. And I remember just being like, oh, my God, that's him. Like, and, and it was like we said hello. He was like, hey, hello. And he seemed like very nice. You know? <laughs> but I was like, I, you know, it, it was there in my head. I wish that like in, in hindsight, I have these like fantasies of me being like, sir, I, I respectfully ask you to please stop this. <laughs> you know, like, Right. Kind of having like a Jimmy Stewart moment. But the truth is that I didn't. I just said hello and watched Annie. Yeah. Well, okay. So maybe there's a metaphor there. We shouldn't parse it too much. But, you know, the, the, the truth is that um, Les Moonves himself is simply operating in a larger system that has told him your job is to make money. You know, when you the media doesn't have a conscience that has a cash register and we have this belief that it should have a conscience. But like all this kerfuffle about Facebook. Well, what did you expect? What did you expect from Facebook? Do you think all these, all this sort of utopian pattern that these tech companies run, we're trying to save the world and connect the world and the internet is just a way nonsense. As soon as something comes into being in a capitalist culture, a bunch of people are figuring out how to make money off of it. 
And they are figuring out that the way you make money is by keeping people on your platform. And how do you do that? You feed them stuff that makes them feel good about their worldview or affirms their worldview. You don't challenge it. You don't tell them a depressing story about dying polar bears, uh, unless they're really cute dying polar bears and it has a heartwarming <laughs> ending. Then you definitely do that. Um, and maybe get a five or six year old to play one of the polar bears. Anyway, <laughs> the, the point is that, you know, the, Les Moonves himself, it, it, I think it's really easy to sort of point to this or that politician or this or that, you know, media figure. Ultimately, they make decisions based. It all redounds to us. This is what I think bad stories might have in common with uh, with the football book against football. It really is ultimately the book is trying to say this is about the stories we construct. And in the end, if there is a cause for hope, you know, if our, our democracy has become degraded or we clearly know it has. And so the question is then why and how and how do we undo it? It's partly because we all got caught up in the Trump follies. We all believed that, you know, John Stewart uh, and and, you know, Stephen Colbert and Samantha Bee and the rest of them would on the left. We all allowed those people to become our designated opiate. We've all fallen under the spells of the, sort of the pleasures of fandom as opposed to the duties of citizenship. And you're realizing, you know, my wife is becoming more politically active. I'm becoming more politically active. That's how it's going to happen. It's not going to happen from the top down. It's going to happen from the bottom up. And, you know, these Parkland you know, kids from Parkland, Florida, they basically said, I'm not going to be the, the object of history. I'm going to be the subject of history. I am going to start to tell more sensible, realistic stories compared to the completely mad uh, stories that are that are told by the gun lobby and their various congressional servants. You know, this nonsense about sensible gun control means that some gun is going to be pried away from a law abiding citizen. It's just this nutty stuff that we've let stand. You know, we had this whole stupid debate about, like, should teachers be, gun you know, given guns? It's like that's not the debate that a mature democracy should be having. And that means we have to not pay attention to those stupid, inflammatory, bad stories because they distract us from better stories. Like every industrialized country that has made guns harder to acquire has seen their gun violence rate plummet. That's the story that we should be learning from. It's not especially complicated. And I feel like. In a sense, in the end, there are more people who are genuinely compassionate and in touch with their compassion and want America to be a less divided, less angry place. And I am not particularly interested in trying to win over somebody who's been watching Fox News and, and drinking the you know, poisonous brew that they've been serving on talk, ring, you know, talk radio for 30 years. I'm not going to win that person over. I just have to wait for them to perish, okay? <laughs> and fortunately, they are an aging population. And I think our job is to say, okay, how do we, uh, because there ultimately are way more of us than there are of them, you know? The, the reality is that there is that there are 104 million Americans who did not exercise their franchise. And I believe that most of them do want government to be more effective, more compassionate, more thoughtful to try to really solve problems rather than servicing our emotional needs. And they just need to you know, we have to become politically active and we have to figure out a way to try to get them involved and motivated 
in in the political process or at least get them out to the polls and you know that really starts in a, again from the ground up that there was a war on poverty long before there was a war on terror like we did that stuff we we're a country that's made incredible moral progress and there is a a deeply redemptive power to storytelling everybody who's a writer or an artist of any kind and i think everybody in the end is kind of telling stories and has artistic impulses that process is i have to believe that process is deeply redemptive because it's an attempt to understand a, a certain kind of pain that we're in and maybe as you said right at the beginning to kind of get to the soul of the matter i think we're living in a time where people are kind of frightened um I think actually terrified because I think there's some instinct that's kicked in within us that knows that we are at a point where not just our empire, but our species is behaving so recklessly and in such a short sighted way that we are not necessarily going to be able to survive unless we fundamentally start to take seriously the the, the real crises that we face. There's a kind of decadence to what's happening on the right. And you want to say to people like Les Moonves or anyone else, or maybe to ourselves in the mirror, we have got to grow up and start taking this seriously. And that begins by casting off those seductive, bad stories in which we totally get lost. You know, you can open your browser and get lost in those bad stories. You can see pundits brawling um, or SNL skits mocking, you know, at any time of the day. And it doesn't do a damn thing to improve the democracy. That happens when people like you and me and whoever's listening to this and all those kids down in Florida and every young person who's becoming involved in the political process actually gets off their fucking ass, detaches from their screen and starts you know, becoming a subject of history. Well, and I mean, I, I could not say it better myself. And um, before I let you go, I want to I want to actually dial it back on two points and touch upon uh, a couple of things that you have already discussed just to get uh, a little bit more insight. And the first, sure. the first is um, like a, something that, that occurred to me when we were talking about the media and the media culture that enabled Trump uh, in 2016 is that, you know, it was, it's a time when we've seen a lot of newspapers shutter. It's a time when yeah. uh, media cult, you know, the media has fractalized and it gets harder and harder to make a buck, you know, whether you're running an online news site or you're running a television network, you know, it's, yep. it's, they were economically stressed and he came in at this time and they saw him as a, as a gold mine and they milked yeah. it. So I think, you know, that's a, the, the timing, the, the business, uh, circ the circumstances of the business of media coalesced with the rise of Trump in a way that was, uh, yeah, I unfortunate. Think yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think that's a more, um, ultimately a more forgiving way of understanding why the New York Times 10 days before the election ran those three stories over the banner and essentially created a media environment. Cause I do think they're sort of the leader, um, they created a media environment where the dominant story for the last week of the campaign was Hillary's emails. You know, that was what they decided to go all in with in a way that made it like it was a terrorist attack or something. I mean, three stories over the fold. That's all that was over the fold. That's at the level of like a war or a terrorist attack when you have the entire top of the New York Times devoted to one story. And it didn't matter that it was a nothing burger. What mattered is it was a story that was going to get people to pick up the paper and talk about it, whether in rage or anguish or vindication. 
And, you know, that's them trying to gin up business. You're absolutely right. And I think that's maybe a, a more forgiving way of looking at it, although ultimately it's really damning because when your editorial sensibility is, will this stimulate, you're not asking, does it matter? You know, I keep thinking about the break-in, the Watergate break-in, you know, where I start the book. It's like the first thing that those journalists asked is, who broke in to the DNC to try to undermine the, one of these political parties? Who were the robbers? Who broke in? Who were the burglars? And the exact same thing happened in 2016. And they didn't say, who were the hackers? Who dispatched these hackers to get that information from the DNC? They didn't ask that question. Instead, they just said, "Ooh, what'd they get? Ooh, they got one of Hillary's speeches. Ooh, they got, you know, some shit talking between the Sanders and the Hillary Clinton campaign and the DNC. Ooh, ooh, let's splash it on the front pages because we know people will read that. And it was utterly cynical, but it was also people just operating as people will in a in a desperate, um, you know, in a, in a failing business. I was going to uh, say I was going to say desperation. You know, they're desperate for the money. Right. Or they felt that they were, and that motivated a lot of uh, bad behavior. Right, right. We, we, bad stories are seductive, and you know we fall prey to them because, and the media knows that we're going to fall prey to them, by which I mean the owners of the corporate media, because it's really hard to tell people a complicated, nuanced story about uh, you know democratic institution or a, a political policy matter that's quite complex and whose effects are not going to be felt emotionally they might be experienced eventually but they're not going to be felt in the way that they're out to get you or there's a scandal or somebody did something wrong you know this sort of drama of recrimination those stories are incredibly seductive even when they are complete and total fucking bullshit i mean i to this day no one will ever be able to tell me exactly what Clinton did other than being a, a, an, an idiot about her email. There was no nefarious intent. There was no, you know, she 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 bungled something bureaucratically. And yet there was more coverage of that story than of policy. You know, it, w w when I encountered voters who had no clue about what the candidates stances were on anything and didn't even seem to care like that the woman who babysat for us on election night, she was going to go to medical school. And I was like, gee, have you uh, studied what the candidates have to say about higher education and like whether you're going to end up at the end of medical school up to your eyeballs and hock or whether you're going to actually get help from the government and not wind up in that terrible spot? She was like, nope, I didn't really, I haven't really, and I just, I missed the deadline for absentee ballots. And like somehow we have to reach that person and say, this matters to you. <laughs> right. This is going to have a big impact on your life. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is that people I feel uh, oftentimes have a sense of uh, disconnect from the government or have, have bought into this uh, narrative. They bought into this narrative that, you know, uh, that I think Reagan uh, popularized, which is that government is the problem. And it, you know, it's been taken to the extreme where there's literally nothing government could ever possibly do that could ever possibly be of benefit. And that the answer is always less. The answer is always no. The answer yep. is always bad. And yeah. it's just, uh, it's, it's, it's a, um, what do you call it? It's it, utterly, it's utterly cynical. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a kind of loop of impotence. And I have to say that this is why I think maybe unconsciously even, I gravitated towards the Grapes of Wrath, you know, this this strange episode where, 
you know, I'm speaking about that book and the end of that book. And, and I mean, that is our great American epic that really says everything there is to say about migration, economic inequality, and also the government is a force for good. It's the cops and the union busters. That That's a book that's about the labor movement and about government as a force for good in the lives of the disenfranchised. And the fact that, um, you know, uh, there are forces that consciously have come along in contravention to Steinbeck, to FDR, to Teddy Roosevelt, you know, right. back in 1910, he's sitting there saying, we have to protect the people from government and business being in alliance against the common man's interests. It's not like this is some new revolutionary idea. You know, much of Martin Luther King's agenda was about poverty, was about economic justice. Yes, very focused on civil rights and the rest of it. But his, you know, when when he was shot, he was really very preoccupied with economic injustice and seeing that and class as a huge matter that that we had not contended with and that had been sort of ignored or overshadowed by race issues. And they both matter. But the, the point is that none of these ideas, these beautiful ideals and correctives are new. Just as Reagan was there figuring, you know, trying to figure out a way to undo that, trying to figure out a way to say government's the enemy, they're the problem, not the solution. There have been uh, powerful narratives and stories that have said just the opposite and that have attempted anyway to renew people's faith. The great tragedy of the way the Affordable Care Act played out was that these set of bad stories, this lurid set of fantasies and conspiracies about death panels and whatever else overshadowed how incredibly effective and smart and efficient that piece of legislation was in improving people's lives. I mean, it was a great uh, effort to to make health care affordable for people who were literally going bankrupt without it. And I, I just feel like there needs to be a fundamental reformation um, in which we, we turn away from the bad stories as seductive as they are and start to tell better stories. And I feel like that is something that, you know, history goes back and forth. There's an ebb and a flow to it. And we're definitely, I feel like, in a very dark place. And anybody who doesn't see that is a part of the problem, ultimately. But sometimes that's necessary. Like, as much as I appreciate all the comedians who want to make me feel better about it all, I'm okay to be distressed about it for a while. I'm okay to be angry and anguished and pissed off and worried for my kids and worried for my fellow man. Like, that's an appropriate response to the moment. And I feel like it's super important that, you know, people continue to read. Like, there's a lot of writers who are very anguished by, like, do I really have the right to write? And there's all this hell, you know, we're going to hell on a handbasket. And how can I just be sitting there in my garret typing my little stories? And I'm like, what are you fucking kidding me? We need stories now more than ever. We need people undertaking the basic moral work of trying to make other people feel more human or, you know, trying to feel more human ourselves than ever before. It's no coincidence that Trump doesn't read. That's the whole point. You know, you cannot have a conscience. Uh, 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 let me say it this way. You cannot ignore your conscience if you are a serious reader, if you are ser somebody who seriously absorbs art, because it forces you to engage with productive forms of bewilderment, like all these terrible decisions we make, these self-destructive decisions with matters of the soul, right? I really like that idea uh, that you expressed. Like, that's what it's all about. 
and there's you know to, to better to be sitting there with that private struggle of writing a short story or an essay or a novel whether it succeeds or not just doing that honest work than having your your head in the news cycle these days because all those stories or most of them anyway are bad stories they're distracting us from the the real human and moral stakes here well, and i feel like you know engaging with art puts us well, in touch with that and is likely to make us want to you know become politically active and not just sit pat and say well i'll let the car drive itself well one of my favorite parts of your book uh is the fact that you interweave with uh you know the political stuff uh personal narrative but also literary narrative and you you make a conscious effort as you talk about bad stories to turn to some of our finest stories as uh guideposts you know and as i was reading that like you know you referenced earlier uh the grapes of wrath you referenced postman you referenced orwell you referenced baldwin uh, I was thinking uh, of how much I like that kind of work. I thought of Olivia Lang. I don't know if you've ever read her, but she does. Uh, need to. She does nonfiction work that does a lot of that. Uh, but it it made me think to myself. Here's the thought that I had: I would never hear anybody on the news, whether it's network news or cable news, do this. I would never. Right. I would never hear like as smart as Rachel Maddow is. Like I don't think I've ever heard her be like. This is a passage from the Grapes of Wrath, like, and tie literature into this. Like, it's so effective. I was like, why are people not doing this? Because it really, it, it's so emotionally moving to me. And I don't know if that's just because I'm a lit nerd and very sympathetic to the literary or if because the wider culture, they think that just wouldn't get ratings. But I'm like, damn, we need to get this back toward the center somehow because it's, yes. uh, it has so much to offer. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, that that's the thing that's crazy to me is that when I think about beautiful pieces of writing, I instantly become emotional. It instantly gets its hooks into me. And I think, you know, part of what's happening is that people are, Hannah Arant said this, totalitarianism is organized loneliness. Like people are dying of loneliness in this country. And it's because they don't have their souls and other people's souls to keep them company. And that's what literature is, is you get to really deeply look into somebody else's experience really into their soul and they're also looking back at you or you, you know you're you're forced to sort of go deep into your own inner life and that is thrilling and it's crazy to me that that there isn't more of it because it's exactly what people need and everything else as useful as it can be explanatory journalism and funny jokes that make us feel better about sad things and you know the demagoguery it's not that it's empty calories but it's not the kind of sustenance that people really need. That, I believe, is in literature. And I believe that. That's why I'm always talking about books and passages from books and writers on Dear Sugars. And it's why I write a lot of book reviews. And it's why I try to get literature and those voices into this book. Because Joseph Conrad is going to say in a much more eloquent way than I ever will what the life of an artist is about and the way in which it is trying to tie all of us together, you know, to connect the unborn to the dead, really. And, you know, like he already wrote that and I was lucky enough to find it. And then it got stuck in my brain because it was so beautiful. It made me want to weep. And then I, you know, as I'm writing the book, it's sort of a magpie. I go, wait a second. Conrad was the, you know, I remember that Conrad quote where he was trying to articulate how, why this is the moment for us to feel even more um, devoted to an even greater sense of urgency as writers and as storytellers. And 
you know, those are just the people who have, uh, I guess, edited themselves into eloquence. And so I'm just going to steal their best material. Like, absolutely. They're going to make a better case than I am. Yeah, don't, no, no need to reinvent the wheel. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. What am I putting out all this effort for? I already did it. Um, so back, uh, you know, a few minutes ago, I said I had two things that I wanted to revisit. The first was media, which we talked about. And the uh, and the financial circumstances of uh, you know the media business, but then the second thing uh, is that I could not let this conversation end without mentioning against football, which is the the last book that you published that uh, we talked about on this show, and mm-hmm. uh, we share fandom uh, like sports fandom as a thing, and we grew up you know re- I'm, I'm a lifelong Green Bay Packers fan, and I've have these increasing feelings of conflict, which we talked about at length in that episode. But when I was reading bad stories and, you know, that one of the bad stories and, and you spoke of this a bit earlier is is this uh, notion that sports is like this uh, sort of faultless, redeeming thing in our culture mm-hmm. that like salves wounds and brings us all together and all this kind of stuff and that we don't really yeah. necessarily look at the dark side of it. But when I was thinking about bad stories and I was thinking about against football, I thought to myself like, man, in an eerie way, that book even though it doesn't necessarily at first blush seem like it would, it foreshadows, uh, yeah, uh, foreshadows a lot of what happened. Like football culture, uh, yep. foreshadows a lot of what we're seeing now. And it's, it's also interesting to me as sort of a subplot that Donald Trump has this sort of wounded, uh, relationship with professional football. Cause they, they sort of jilted him. It's like a community that he right. was sort of, you know, not allowed to enter or whatever. And so I feel like he's got this complicated antagonistic relationship with it. And yet he yep. loves, he loves it. And he loves to sort of associate himself with the Patriots and all that crap. And, yeah. uh, I don't know. I just, I just wanted to bring yeah. it up and, and not to over talk, but this section of bad stories really moved me because it articulated something that I have talked about all throughout my adult life in really kind of inarticulate ways or ways that, I don't know, weren't fully formed or understandable by me. Uh, but I would sometimes say, like as a young man, and I've said it even recently, like, I'm not, I don't want to compete. I, I don't want to win. Like, I, I, I'm not driven by that. Like, and yet I'm a football fan and I do have this, like, I get excited when the Packers win in the playoffs and I, I'm capable of experiencing that, like, thrill of victory that has yeah. that has nothing to do with me, and really has nothing to do with anything but the uniform. You know, when you boil it down, yeah. so it's 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 a little bit complex. But like, there is this sort of uh, like you talk about it. How really, when you boil it all down, sports are about what is it? Money and winning. Is that it? Right. Those are the two incentives. But I would say that that when you're rooting for the Packers, it has everything to do with you. You're rooting for yourself. You're rooting for your childhood. You're rooting for your connection to your family. You know you. You're rooting for your own soul in a way. And and I, I hate when people write off fandom as dumb or brutal or mindless or whatever because it's deeper than that. Anything that has a hold on us has a hold for a reason. And we might not want to look at it, but if we do look at it, we'll see that it's deeper than just, you know, you're a dope or, you you know, it's a childish pleasure. Like th- th- there's something very real happening. What I think is fascinating about Trump as a figure is that you're right about this fact that he represents this interesting duality. He's both allegedly a winner with, you know, he's a big businessman and, you know, he's got his gold toilets and his various model wives and porn star. You know, he's living out a certain kind of fantasy where he's the big deal and he's the winner. 
But inside, I think there is a deep sense that he's a loser who's been excluded from Manhattan high life. Why did he start his whole presidential jihad? Well, he did it because, you know, basically the Washington Post invited him to be part of the correspondence dinner and Obama mocked him in front of all these elites. And he got furious about it. That was his Ahab moment where he was like, you just bit my leg off and I'm going to run for president and kill you. The white whale of, you know, of, of politics. I'm going to make you people see that you're the punchline and I'm really the real. And so there's this kind of duality within him. On the one hand, he seems like a big tough guy who's in control of everything. That's the fantasy. But it's so obvious that inside he feels like a total loser and, and totally aggrieved and excluded from the exclusive club. And that's why I think people were so bonded to him because he had that attitudinal sense. He wasn't a change agent in terms of his policies. His policies were like, send us back to the fifties or, or before the enlightenment even, you know, <laughs> but, but attitudinally he um, was kind of, uh, there was a sense in which nobody had ever seen a politician who was so rawly insecure. So sort of cr- insanely, uh, emotionally obvious in his insecurities, his need for adulation, his his projection of, of his own self-loathing onto the world around him, his readiness to fantasize about the assassination of his opponent or stalker around the stage, or, you know, it was all this stuff that was so unhinged, but it was a kind of unhinged that we all recognize from within ourselves. It's a kind of infantile, almost at the level of being infantile. And you know, we have all these polite adult routines, but underneath that are bubbling all these really powerful thoughts and feelings and fantasies um, that are really vestiges of our childhood, which is a kingdom where you're always feeling powerless and excluded. And the adult world is, you know, too complex that it won't let you in. You don't have any power relative to it. And I think he really spoke to that in a, in a deep way, um, in addition to everything else that was going on. And, you know, the football thing was part of the reason that I was like, wait a second, the reason the NFL has gotten so popular is the same reason that Trump is going to do well, because it's all about spectacle. It's all about a spectacle that's about the, the, the sort of vicarious drinking in of a kind of ritualized violence, which sounds like a Trump rally, basically. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's the, what, what was happening at that convention? What was the enduring memory of the Republican National Convention? It was lock her up, you know, this kind of crazy tribal chant. That's like a murderous pep rally, you know, uh, that, that's much closer to Nuremberg than it is to keep hope alive, you know, to like what we think of as an American uh, political rally or, or, you know, convention or or and, or an Oakland Raiders game. <laughs> or, okay. All right. There it is with the skull and everything. Yeah. So, no, it's true. I mean, I, I definitely have been thinking about this for a long time and my way of trying to, I was using, uh, I think of it as kind of a trellis. Football was the trellis that I had around which I could wind my various anxieties uh, about where we were as a country and, and our racial dynamics and this kind of hyper-capitalism and the, the, the sort of impoverishment of our educational, our esteem for education um, in all the ways, our misogyny, all the ways that we really uh, are, are living in a much different country than we think we are, much less enlightened, much more primal and primitive. Um, and, you know, Trump came along. If he had any sense, he would have recognized, like, okay, the the reason I'm going to do well is because the NFL is doing well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, no, it's like it's weirdly symbolic uh, football, like in ways that 
uh, until I read your book, I didn't quite realize. But that's the that's the work of of really good books, and I think the effect that Postman's book and others like it have had on you in your lifetime is the effect that bad stories uh, and and against football have had on me. So I thank you for writing them. Um, finally, oh, I, and I, I asked this of pretty much all of my guests uh, over the past year. It seems that way anyway is I tend to ask people like, how is this going to end? Like, do you have a sense, like as somebody who's sat with this stuff, uh, in a deeper way than most everybody and has written an entire book about it? Like, do you have any sense of the end game? Like, do you have a feeling for it? No, I, I don't. Um, I, I have, or I should say it shifts from moment to moment. And there are moments where I'm like, look, just be honest. This is this is heading in a bad direction. We don't have that much time to try to turn it around. The climate is already irrevocably uh, changing in ways that are going to be really disruptive. We've got this kind of aggrieved population. This is the this is the end of an empire. Look at Rome. Look at the Aztecs. Look at any of them. This is the, you know this is this is how it happens. And of course, it takes several years or decades, but that's where we're headed. Okay, so that's one narrative. That's very frightening. And, you know, I don't want to look at, but I, I sometimes feel it in dark moments. And then there's another part of me that says, hold on a second. Um, look, you know, there is a, a, a possibility that there are ideals and correctives that enough people will cleave to that we will look back at this time and say that was a dark time. And we were making some bad and irresponsible decisions, but uh, we recognized the consequences of those bad decisions, enough of us in the democracy, that we started to make better decisions based on better stories. And we looked at that time where, um, you know, propaganda was so powerful and people's primal negative emotions held such sway over our political fate. And we'll look at that as a dark time that we that we learned from. Um, and we're still going to have a lot of challenges, but at least we're now starting to talk about those and about solutions to them in a realistic way. I hope I pray that that is where it's headed. But the truth is, it's most honest to say I have no idea. And for that reason, I should be even more vigilant and active as a citizen. I mean, ultimately, I'm trying to get people to uh, I'm hoping people will read the book and say, OK, it's not a self-driving car. I think we've taken democracy for granted for years and, and kind of got fat during the Clinton years and then got cynical during the Bush years. And, you know, we, we, we I think we got ultimately kind of polarized and tuned out in the Obama years. And so now we've got, you know, this this dark time and I'm hoping it's going to be uh, that there's going to be the pendulum is going to swing the other way. I pray for it. But we're the pendulum. And we've got to do that work and you've got to go to, you know, to that fundraiser and your wife has to keep involved with her. And you know what I mean? And we have to model that for our kids because they watch everything. Uh, you know, we have to model that. And they're the ones who have a greater stake in all this than than old dudes like us. What what about running for office? Has that ever crossed your mind? Because like, that's how I feel when I read you. I'm like, God, like I want him to be on the stump talking like I would I would vote for you in a heartbeat. I feel like you've. I don't know. You're yeah. such a deep thinker. Like, is that is that a line you would ever cross? Because that's a tough arena. But, it, you know, you talk yeah. about you talk about getting involved and really making a difference and changing things like maybe you yeah. jump in there. Has that ever crossed your mind? Of course. Absolutely. All the time, you know, writing about this, this demagogue running for president was my way of sort of saying, oh, I want to do that. I want I want to I want to, you know, have my say and so forth. Of course, I'm not going to sit here. I never thought of it, you know, but the truth is that. I think the best kind of thing that I can do is use whatever gifts I have as a, uh, you know, somebody who's sort of trying to 
come to grips with where we're at. And those are as a storyteller, you know, I don't think I would be good uh, in the political arena, partly because I think I would get very frustrated. And I think um, it would be it would be exhausting to realize how much of it is predicated on money and how much of it is predicated on having to. Um, but maybe that's a cop out. And maybe I should, you know, maybe, maybe it's people like me and you, frankly, who should be saying, wait a second, why aren't I running for office? And so let me just take a step back and and do a U-turn here. Maybe that's what we should be thinking about. We should be thinking about how can I become more active? And and certainly when I talk about this book in the world, my intention is to really try to say to people, hey, we're in charge. It's not happening out there. We're the subjects of history. We mustn't uh, consent to a story in which we are just this bad stuff happened and there was nothing we could do about it. We are the thing that we can do about it. And I think that might be the most effective thing that I can try to do is to help people make sense, maybe, I hope, knock on wood, make sense of how we got here and have an honest discussion about certain things that aren't going to change things overnight. I don't expect you to stop watching the Packers, but I do think you'll probably watch it a little bit less yeah. and devote more of your time to, to, to other activities that make you a better citizen rather than a better fan. Do you know what I mean? Or that don't, not like don't leave me with that feeling of like having just eaten like 12 Snickers bars. Like even after, <laughs> even, a, even after we win, you know what I'm saying? I do notice like, it's like, what was that? It's like a sugar high. It's a weird, it's a weird yeah, feeling like, like post football yeah, game. It's a post-football feeling. It was always it was always masturbatory to me. Like post, <laughs> oh, a little man, bit. I know I enjoyed it and everything, but now I just feel kind of icky and lonely. So yeah. So I, I don't want us to feel like that. I want us to I want us to be feeling like uh, you know I'm I'm hoping that that the book will um, make people feel that that there is hope, but that the hope resides in our activity. Our thinking about the stories that we're telling, that we're hearing, that we're consenting to. And if they seem like bad stories, tuning them out or actively opposing them, you know, becoming politically involved, prying ourselves from this world of just sitting back as passive observers. Um, And I do, I mean, again, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm just, I'm not a praying person. I'm not a believer. I think God exists between us. That's what love is. But I'm like praying in that way that that kind of person would that we're going to that, that we're going to come to our senses and start to behave become more politically and morally active and um you know that 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 we will I don't want to say like rescue things or turn them all around but that we, we will start the process of casting off and turning away from the bad stories and and therefore maybe make room for better stories once I, the you know uh, I think I I think you should write a book called better stories as a companion to bad <laughs> stories yeah, that's that's, so. that's your next task because, like, honestly, I would I would snatch that up. I would be very interested to have your brain address, like, okay, so we know that these are the bad stories. Like, what's the prescriptive? You know what I'm saying? Like, how do we? How do we? Yeah. What What are maybe some better stories we could tell ourselves on issues like climate and guns and uh, income inequality and all the big things that are pressing down on our on our world. But I think they're honestly, I think they're out there, Brad. I just don't think we've been looking at them. You know, there are amazing things that are happening 
and you know in terms of whatever it is sustainable energy right i mean in, in, you can go down the list you know all these countries who have figured out ways to reduce gun violence shockingly by reducing gun ownership but anyway <laughs> you know it's, it's not the solutions are out there the correctives are out there there are even people with causes who are who are pushing for those it's that we have to get off of our butts and engage with those causes and candidates that we believe in. That's the solution. There, there are already people out there who are telling those better stories. But all right, I hear you. I'll, I'll get to work on it. I <laughs> yeah. We'll talk next year. <laughs> exactly. Uh, oh. Well, listen, it's such, a, it's such a joy to get a chance to pick your brain about all this stuff. And, uh, and, and I just can't tell you how much I enjoyed reading the book. And uh, as upsetting as it is, uh, and I think uh, on the back of the galley, there's an email that you got from Cheryl Strayed. Yeah. And she says she says it very well. You know, there's like a some consolation in it uh, somehow in reading about this and in getting some clarity on where we are uh, because it's a very, it's a very confusing time. So it's a it's a noble thing to have done, and I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, look, it's like when you're in a really bad place in your life, you know, and you know you you kind of it's that moment where you have to go. Okay, I'm in a really bad place. But it is not going to help if I can't make sense of the bad place that I'm in. Like the, the solution begins with trying to make sense of the bad place. Well, the sunken place. <laughs> it's, exactly. it's another another way of putting it. But it, it's great to talk to you, Steve. Yeah, what a pleasure, man. I I, I always uh, look. I I have a small, very small readership. But I like all of them. There's like seven people out there reading my work, and I love every one of them. And you are at least two of them. <laughs> all right, man. Best to you. All right. Take care. All right, guys. There you go. That is Steve Almond. His book is called Bad Stories. What the hell just happened to our country? It's available from Red Hen Press. You can find him online at stevealmondjoy.org. He's, uh, he's also on Twitter at Steve Almond Joy. Bad Stories. Available now from Steve Allman. Great conversation, great book. Go get your copy. Uh, this show has a website, otherppl.com. It has a Twitter feed at otherppl. If you would like to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Go get the app. The app is free. If you want to support the program, the address is, uh, what is it, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. So, yeah, I really do feel like we are reaching some sort of critical mass with this. But then again, uh, I've kind of had that feeling before, and things just keep getting weirder and darker. So maybe I'm mistaken. I hope I'm not. I hope that uh, ultimately uh, the force of good prevails. But I don't, I'm not one of these people who thinks it's automatically going to happen. I have a friend, he's very uh, optimistic about things all the time not worried about it at all and i'm like you know what these things don't happen on their own we got to do something it's up to us people make this stuff happen okay